Chapter Twenty Four of the Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Radio Planet by Ralph Myon Farley. Chapter Twenty Four: The Lobsterite Circuit. Maltz could not help comparing his present ease of passage down the swath cut by the Capians with his difficult grubbing through the shrubs a few feet an hour, or even with forcing his way behind the wedge-faced insect. Upon his arrival at the brink of the abyss, his first act was to test the black sand with an electric coil. As he had expected, it was magnetized, the only iron ore which will respond to a magnet. It was the same ore as he had used in his crucibles while making his radio set in Vikingi. This preliminary disposed of, cables were quickly stretched back and forth across the pit, and from these cables large electromagnets were hung close to the surface of the water. Wires were run from the lighting system of the nearby town to a master controller at the top of the cliff. When all was in readiness, the earthman threw the current into all the circuits. The result was immediate. To the surface of the water there floated bottom side up a score or more of lobster-like creatures each the size of a freight car. Poor beasts! The pallets of sand and cement in the cavities of their gravity-sense organs were composed of magnetite, and this being attracted upwardly by the suspended electromagnets gave the poor creatures the impression that up was down, and down was up. Consequently, reversing their position and floating to the surface, they imagined, with what little imagination their primitive brains were capable of, that they were resting peacefully at the bottom of the lake. Next they were turned on, in place of the suspended magnets, a number of magnets lying against the steep side of the pit, near the surface of the water. And instantly all the lobsterites rolled over, with their bellies toward that side of the pit. The experiment was a complete success. Grappling hooks and blocks and tackle were then brought, and dragging was begun for the airplane, the end rifle, and the bandolier of cartridges which Maltz had lost on the night of his landing in Capia. The radio man himself, stationed at his switchboard, manipulated the instruments. Presumably all three of the sword articles were near the bank where Cabot had landed, so fishing was begun at that point, while energized magnets across the pond drew the huge crustaceans away. Even so, several of them swam back and snapped at the grappling hooks. This gave Miles an opportunity to practice his controls. Whenever one of the monsters of the deep would approach any of the dredging apparatus, the radio man would close the switch which controlled some nearby magnet, whereat the bewildered beast would be thrown completely off his balance, and would require several power paths before he could orient himself to the new lines of force. By the time that this had been accomplished, Cabot would have switched on some other magnet, thus again upsetting the beast's equilibrium. It was a truly weird and novel tune which this electrical genius of two worlds played upon his keyboard, while huge green shapes moved at his command. Finally, Maltz got so expert at this strange game that it became safe for his workmen to descend into the pit without fear of the denizens of the deep. At last, the ropes were securely fastened to the end-plane, and it was drawn up to the bank to safety. The firearm and ammunition followed shortly thereafter. The forces of the true king, Baby Q, were now armed with one small airship, one rifle, and one bandolier of cartridges. 
You must attack at once, Nanan asserted. The earthman looked at the Kupian in surprise. Why? he asked. Because, the young cleric explained, if you don't, some of his village is going to get word to Prince Yuri of your return. Although no announcement has yet been made of your identity, this feat of yours of overcoming the scissor beasts is as good as a verbal introduction. Runners will soon be notifying the usurper. Why runners? Miles asked. Why not radio? Because, Nanan replied, I took the precaution to throw an adjusting tool into the local motor generator set early this morning. One of the solenoids is hopelessly jammed, and it will take several days and nights of steady work to restore it. Great are the ramifications of the lost religions, Kabo murmured approvingly. But the young cleric pouted in spite of the tone of approval. Said he, there were no ramifications to this accomplishment. I did it all myself. Have it your own way, Miles returned conciliatorily. But to get back to what we were discussing, how am I to attack the usurper with no troops and only one plane and one rifle? But you must attack, Nanon objected. As for planes, every plane in the kingdom, save only yours, is under lock and key at Rautusa, the old naval air base, which is now the headquarters of the Whistling Bees. Every firearm, save two, your rifle and Prince Yori's automatic, is under heavy guard at the Kauna Arsenal. Only the pretender himself and the Arsenal guards, who are trusted henchmen of his, are permitted to be armed. And I suppose... The earthman interjected with a shrug, that you expect me, uh, alone and single-handed, to seize the Kauna arsenal and distribute arms to my people. Not exactly, the priest replied. You see, at which point the conversation was interrupted by a body of troops, for abreast, which came marching toward them, down the aisle which had been cut through the trees. Cabo stepped back to ghast, trapped, the soldiers swung along in the perfect cadence which had been taught them by generations spent in the marching clubs, or hundreds, of Kupia. True, they were unarmed, but what could one armed human do against such numbers? Cabot glanced down the path and saw hundred after hundred turn into it at the farther end. There was only one possibility of escape, his plane. But the plane was still dripping from its submergence in the pond. Would its trophy engine start while wet? Had enough water leaked into the alcohol tanks to damage the fuel, he would see. Shouting to Nanan and Emsel to follow, he started toward his craft, but the young cleric blocked his way. Treachery! No, for the young priest cried, Fear not, defender of the faith. These be friends. They are the armies which you are to lead against Yuri. They are marching clubs of the loyal hill towns, which have been called together here, ostensibly for an athletic tournament. Cabot stopped his mad scramble of retreat and smiled. With such men, he would reconquer Kupia. Yuri or no Yuri, bees or no bees. The foremost hundred debouched and formed in company front. Then, from the ranks, there stepped a Kupian, who snatched off his blond wig, revealing ruddy locks beneath. Onto his own right breast, he pinned a red circle, the insignia of Field Marshal. It was her babu, chief of staff of the armies of Kupier, which had been Cabot's right-hand man in the two wars of liberation. Facing the troops, he gave a crisp command, upshot every left hand. Then, wheeling about, he held his own hand aloft and shouted, "'Yoo, Maltz Cabot! We are ready to follow where you lead!' "'Yahoo!' the troops echoed in unison.' 
and then, giving his man the order, At ease! Haas drove up to the earth man. Warmly, the two friends patted each other on the cheek. It was many sons since they had seen each other, and much had happened in the meantime. A council of war was immediately held between Maltz, Ha, Nanan, and Emsel at the plain. "'Won't this gathering come to the attention of Yuri?' Maltz asked. "'And won't you at once suspect its course, in view of its nearness to Luno Castle, and in view of my recent radio announcements from Vikingi?' "'I doubt it,' the Babu replied, "'for we have wrecked every radio set in the vicinity.' but this did not reassure the earthman as much as it might. It would seem to me, he asserted, that this very fact would put Prince Yuri on his guard. Possibly so, Nanan ruefully admitted, but it will take four days for investigators to cover the thousand starts from Kuana to here by Kerkul, a two days by B. And in the meantime, Maltz countered, it will take our plane two days to reach Kuana, and our Kerkul's four. Then, Emsel suggested, had we not better march openly and at once? This suggestion was accepted, with the reservation, however, that the return of Cabot and the existence of their plane were to be kept as secret as possible. Accordingly, the main body of the troops were put on the march toward Kuana, under Emsel, with instructions to requisition every available Kirkul, wreck every radio set, and place every settlement under martial law. The Kakults, as fast as ceased, were to be manned by the best sharpshooters and sent ahead. The local village and the lobster pond were placed under heavy guard, and the earthman, with his plane and rifle, remained under cover. That night, just as sunset, he started forth. The airship had been stripped to its lightest, and in it were crowded Maltz Cabot, Harbabu, Nanan, and half a dozen sharpshooters. Long before morning, they came up with the lights of the foremost Kirkuls, and so were forced to cease their advance, whereupon they landed and encamped for the rest of the night and the following day. All day long Kirkuls passed them on the road, stopping to report as they passed. Apparently a surprising number of these swift two-wheeled Peruvian autos had been captured. The following night the plane again took wing, and continued until it caught up once more with the advance guard of the taxicab army. These men reported that, at the last radio station ceased, they had learned that Prince Yuri had put censorship on the air, thus showing conclusively that the usurper had learned something of what was going on. Then the Kukuls swept ahead, and Cabot encamped as before. He was now halfway to Kuana, his loved ones, and Prince Yuri. Toward the end of the day which followed, the advancing Kukuls met a bombing squadron of whistling bees, and were forced to halt and take cover as best they could. Most of the men escaped, but many of the machines had to be left on the road, where they were demolished by the bombs of the enemy. During all this confusion, a cuckoo from the capital, bearing cross sticks as a flag of truce, drew up to the vanguard with the following message. King Yuri cannot but regard the steady procession of Kirkuls toward Kuana as a menace directed against him. If it is not so intended, then let a delegation and one Kirkul proceed under cross sticks to convince him of your sincerity. From now on, if more than one Kirkul advances, it will be taken as a hostile act, and Prince Q, the heir to the throne, will be sacrificed as a hostage. Upon receiving this message, Emsel at once directed his followers to stay where they were, until Maltz Cabot should catch up with them.
Then, with a picked body of men, in one cacool, and across sticks, he took up the road towards Kuana, preceded by the delegation which had brought the message from Yuri. Not a word would he give them as to the purpose of the advance. "'Your message was from Prince Yuri,' he said, "'and therefore to Prince Yuri shall be the reply. But it does seem a bit thoughtless of the Hymenians to drop bombs on our men, before even attempting to ascertain whether or not our advance was intended to be peaceful.' To this they in turn made no answer. About midnight, Mart's Cabot in his airplane reached the point where the Kukuls had halted. He found the Kupians confused and more or less leaderless. He, as they, was horrified at the threat which the usurper Yuri held over the head of the little king. But while he and Nan-Nan and Ha-Babu were conferring on the situation, word was brought in by a party who had just demolished a nearby radio set that they had picked the following unaddressed and unsigned message out of the air. Fear not, Baby Q has been kidnapped from the palace and is safe. Somehow this news carried conviction. The longer they considered it, the more authentic it appeared. Certainly it could not have emanated from Yuri, for he could have no possible object in deceiving them into thinking that the little king was safe and thus encouraging them to proceed with whatever they might have afoot. But they could not imagine who was their informant. It might be anyone of a number of the leaders in Cabot's two wars of liberation. Poplath, the philosopher, Mango of the Kuana jail, Jarbabu, Oyabu, and Bu Tedden, professors at the Royal University, Count Kamel of Ketu, the ex-radical, or even the loyal Prince Torin, Yuri younger brother, whom Cabot had left in charge as regent, upon embarking on his ill-fated visit to the earth. All these loyal Kupians had been driven into hiding, when the renegade Yuri had returned across the boiling seas and had observed the throne, with the aid of the Hymenians. Where they now were, no one knew. This message might be from any one of them, or it might not. Anyhow, it served to hearten Cabot and his two companions, said Malz, and undoubtedly there were some of Yuri's Kupian henchmen on the backs of the bees which bombed our Kerkuls. These have probably reported by wireless that our advance has stopped. I do not believe that Yuri yet knows that we have a plane. Accordingly, he will not expect immediate trouble, so long as our vanguard remains here, four hundred stats from Kuana. You, Hababu, remain here in charge of our troops. I seriously doubt if the usurper will attack you, for he does not dare trust enough Kupians with rifles for that purpose. Nanan and I, and our sharpshooters, will proceed as rapidly as possible in the plain, until daybreak, when we will encamp as usual. Tomorrow afternoon, send scouts ahead to destroy the wireless, and start your whole Kakul army on the move at sunset. Bend every effort to join me as soon as possible at the capital where I expect to arrive some time tomorrow night. Beyond that, I have no definite plans. May the great builder speed our course. Then he said good night, and took off once more in his plane. As he soared aloft with his noisy trophal motor, Earthman would have heard it for stats in every direction. But these Cupians were earless, and hence possessed no sense of hearing as we know it. The noisy plane could make no impression upon their antenna sense, for its engines, being of the trophil variety, or diesel, as we call a somewhat similar device on earth, had no electrical ignition. 
Throughout the remainder of the night, the plane sped southward, deviating from its course only when whistling sounds warned them of the presence of bees. With the first faint tinge of pink in the east, they landed and hid their airship at the edge of a wood, two hundred and sixty stats from Kuana. A small town lay nearby. To it went several of the crew in search of food and information, while the rest took turns guarding the plane and sleeping. During Cabot's turn at watch, he noted a figure slinking across a neighbouring field. There was something strangely familiar about this figure, so Maltz hid himself in a tartan bush and awaited its approach. It walked with a peculiar limp, very much like that which had characterised Boothedon, ever since he recovered from the shell wound which he had received in the Second War of Liberation. But the face and the hair of the approaching Cupian bore no resemblance to that of Professor Tidden. Nevertheless, Cabot took a chance. Stepping suddenly from his place of concealment, he shouted, Boothedon! Thereat, the Cupian emitted a shriek of terror from his antennae and started running away across the fields. Stop, the earthman called. I am Miles Cabot. The fleeing man halted abruptly and peered at Miles inquisitively. And then he smiled and snatched off his wig and straightened out his expression. It was none other than Boo Tedden. So you're the cause of all the rumpus, he ejaculated, returning and patting his friend warmly on the cheek. What rumpus? Miles inquired with interest. While this won't work, the other replied, I know messages on the air anyhow. Nothing but beasts. The air's full of them, anyhow. Also full of vague rumours of all sorts. As Poplith would say, Where there's wind, there's a storm. Speaking of Poplath, Mount said, Where is the philosopher? Kuana, last I heard, Boothead replied, Jababu and Ayabu are somewhere in the west. Prince Torin has disappeared completely. Hababu and Emsul are supposed to be in the northern part of the Yokards Mountain. Uh, Kamal Barsakar has gone over to Yuri. Uh, I'm here. That about completes the list of our former leaders. Hababu is in charge of my unarmed forces, 160 stats north of here, Kabo answered. Emsul is on his way to Yuri and across sticks. I am here in a plane with one rifle, Nanan the cleric, and six unarmed sharpshooters. What is the idea? Tedden asked. The idea is to fly to Kuana tonight, the earthman replied, and raise as much raffles as possible for Prince Yuri. Will you come with us? There's one vacant place in the plain. The Capian looked at him admiringly and said, You are still the same old Miles Cabot. You propose to capture Kuana practically without arms and single-handed, and the joke is that you will probably succeed. How do you do it? It's a gift, Miles laughed, but trees have antenna, as Poplath would say. Let us proceed to the plain and wait for evening. At the plain, Cabot awakened one of the Cupians to take his place on guard. Then, in low tones, he and Boothedon each related to the other all that had occurred since the meta-transmitting apparatus had shot the radio man earthward. Along toward the night, the absentees returned from the village, bringing provisions, but scarcely any news except that the place was seething with suppressed excitement and that they had succeeded in getting into the radio station and pieing the apparatus. Let's start then at once, Boothedon counselled. No one can now get word to Yuri, and perhaps they will mistake us for a Hymenian Henniar. But impatient as he was, Miles would hear none of this. 
They could easily dispatch a runner to some nearby town to send the message from there, he said. Furthermore, a plane looks very little like a whistling bee. So the group feasted, and waited until the last streaks of red had died in the west, before they shot into the air and southward. The plane was driven to its utmost, but it was later than one o'clock before the lights of Kuana loomed ahead. Turning to the right, Kabo skirted the city and landed near the arsenal. Nanan promptly left them. I have church affairs to attend to, he explained. Great are the ramifications of the lost religion, the earthman replied, laughing, and I hope that you pick out some useful information. After the young cleric had gone, Butadan asked, Surely you don't plan for us to attack the arsenal? It is heavily guarded by the only man whom Yuri permits to carry firearms in this entire kingdom. End of chapter 24 Recording by Mocha.